Hello, I'm Sumit Bose. This is the Net Hero Podcast. Uh, the Net Hero Podcast during COP, COP27. A couple of things, though, before I talk about COP. And today's subject, by the way, is a cracker. Podcast is all about biomass. Oh, yes, green things. Uh, but before that, so COP27's on, and Rishi is there, and Boris is there, and Emmanuel is there, and uh, everyone is there. And the question is, is nothing ever being done? Now, uh, Rob, myself and Dimmy, we went last year to COP in Glasgow. And I think, you know, my conclusion was, there was a hell of a lot of greenwashing, but there were some really decent people that we met from around the world who had real kind of, you know, positive ambitions about trying to do something. Now, since COP has passed, really what has happened? Last year was supposed to be a breakthrough COP because there was a commitment to less coal around the planet being used. And there was a commitment to try and, you know, really look at the levels of the Paris Accord and abide by those targets. And then in February, old Putin dictator decided to go to Ukraine and frankly has just screwed the whole planet so we're now back to a real mix of a dash coal in parts of the world gas obviously is at a premium and if you saw the latest reports on futurenetzero.com you'll see that the un has said things are very unlikely to be on track to hit the 1.5 degree now just to explore that if we warm more than 1.5 degrees, we're not going to die, right? Let's not say we're going to have an apocalypse. It just means that the frequency of these events will get worse. Now, I'm not saying that that means we shouldn't ignore the target, but I just think a lot of the um, talk has been like, this is the end. We're ending for destruction of the human race. No, we're not. It won't be. But we've got to try and get back on track. And it's quite interesting, the, the statement from Rishi Sunak, which I kind of agree with, that the Ukraine war shouldn't be a reason to go back to try and secure more oil and gas reserves. It should actually be a wake-up call to move away from that. And if you look at where we are, there was a good piece in the BBC uh, website this week about, you know, how have we got to this stage? And it's 15 years of neglect, 15 years of poor policy. We should have built more nuclear. We should have done more onshore wind. And we should damn well have thought about things like gas storage, which we decided to mothball. And then the biggest sort of elephant in the room is energy efficiency, which we're still absolutely crap at. And the last week's podcast was all about homes. I've done one which will come out next week, which is again about our building stock because it's the most vital thing. Our leaky houses... It doesn't matter how much we generate. If we're just losing energy, what is the point? So what will happen from COP? I don't think too much, I'll be honest with you. But I do hope there is some uh, movement on helping the, the poorer nations uh, to try and balance and mitigate against the causes. And globally, we have got to get it together. Whatever anyone says, you know, no one, no one, whatever uh, XR or just opposite, no one wants to make the planet hotter right no, no one in their right mind wants to destroy our world it's just that there are issues 
that are there, which people have to deal with. Unfortunately, that takes time. We've just got to get on with it. And it may be that pockets of the world go faster than the others. But if we don't do anything, then what's the point? My final uh, little tirade today uh, before we get to the podcast is about Just Stop Oil. And frankly, I'll be honest with you, we had them on. Um, I pretty much had enough. I just think, you know, you, you're losing the argument with the public when you keep causing disruption like this. This is not the civil rights movement, whatever people say. And, and I find it quite annoying, this kind of narrative that's built up that, you know, we're doing this to save our, our future. Well, I think what you're doing is you're disrupting a lot of people. And generally, I find the people who are doing this are quite wealthy, quite wealthy middle class people. You've got the time to go and pods about and climb gantries and do that. And I don't think they're winning the argument. I, get, I don't care whether I get flack from this. I just don't think it's the right way to do it. Yes, we do need to cut down and eventually stop oil and gas. But these continuous protests around how we're doing it, where you constantly, constantly disrupt people, I'm not, I'm not too sure of. And the final thing, which I want to look into, how do you think all of this has been funded? Well, it's run by something called the Climate Emergency Fund, which is, from what I can see, if you look, at, look them up, climateemergencyfund.org, have a look. And the, the board is run by... Uh, I think the granddaughter of um, uh, Getty, John Paul Getty, Eileen Getty. And her grandfather was an oil baron. So suddenly someone who's had billions of pounds worth of money through the oil system is suddenly an evangelist for causing disruption in the world. And it seems to me that there's some questions to be asked about what this group is doing and how it's funding it because i'm all for for proper political protests i've done many of it myself but i just get the feeling that this is turning into some sort of a anti kind of you know disruptive force that's just protesting for the sake of it we must take everyone with us and you can say what you like in parts of africa india uh, indonesia brazil there are bigger fish to fry than climbing up gantries. There's my little rant. Disagree, agree, shout me down. Uh, let me know what you think. Get in touch on social media and we'll take it from there. Now, on to a subject that I've been grappling with for years is biomass sustainable. And I had a fantastic chat this week, which changed my mind. Trees. Ah, if you are as old as me, you might remember uh, something called the Cannonball Run. And uh, there was a character in it, uh, played by Farrah Fawcett, who just sort of had this thing where she kept talking about, I love trees, and trees are wonderful. <laughs> I don't know why that's got into my mind, but that is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about biomass. We're going to talk about trees. Now, for millennia, we took trees, we chopped them down, we built houses out of them and we burned them. And then about 250 years ago, we realized there was some black stuff that we could use to burn to give us much better energy. And since then, we've obviously moved into the fossil fuel world. One way that we can get to net zero, and some people call it controversial, is to go back to burning wood. These days, we call it biomass. And it can be either wood shavings, clippings, a mix of material. But essentially, it's cutting down plants and burning them. 
But is that really what we should be doing? You may have seen the Panorama documentary about Drax and a lot of controversy there about them cutting down prime forests. You've got a lot of people who uh, on the environmental side of the argument think it's a disastrous idea to do it. It creates deforestation, it encourages rogue behavior in parts of the planet where there's not as much oversight. Or on the other hand, you could say, actually, this is a very sustainable way of powering our transition. The government certainly has put a lot of money behind biomass. And there's also something called BECS, which is biomass, with sort of carbon capture and storage. And so what does it really mean? What is biomass all about? Is it really a pathway to net zero? Is it something that we should be concerned about? Are the environmentalists right? Well, today I'm joined by Patricia Thornley, Professor Thornley, even though she's very nice and didn't need to know that, from Aston University, who's an expert on all things on this. Patricia, thanks so much for joining us in the Net Hero podcast. Yeah, pleasure to be with you. Let's just start with that. Uh, a bit facetious of me with, with the um, perifaucet, but hey, it was good. I, just, I remember that. Um, it's biomass simply chopping down trees and burning them. Not really. Okay, but let, let's let's put a few preconditions in there. The, the trees that we're using have to be sustainably grown. So, you know, we, we have to be working with stuff that where we've given care um, to how it's been grown, but also that it's on a basis so that it is um, in the future going to be replanted. And the, the thing about deforestation is not so much that we cut trees down, but that we reduce the area of land on the planet that has trees on it. So what we've got to be really careful about is that we have these forests, they're growing trees, sure we can cut them down, but we must then replant. So, so let's get that bit straight first. And, and then, you know, what we do with it, is it just burning it? Well, today that's mostly what we've done with it, you know, but, but I'm a scientist. I'm working on loads of really clever things that we could do with the trees. And one of the things about that is it helps you to capture the carbon. So great, you know, carbon comes into the tree when it's growing. And if you cut it down, then you're returning the carbon to atmosphere. You're only returning what you took out. So that doesn't make too big a difference and we can come back to time scale maybe a little bit later on that but if I can be smart with the tree that I cut down and I can turn it into something that stays down in the ecosphere and um, for longer then what I've effectively done is transferred carbon dioxide in the air to something useful and um, that we're using and the sort of stuff that we're looking at here is you know can we take the trees and turn it into plastics to replace you know the, right. the plastics that we use so there's a load of different things we could do that actually lock the carbon up the whole concept of you know most people wouldn't know this but let, let's go back to to the biology 101 trees grow because of photosynthesis which needs carbon dioxide right so Correct. It, it gets the they suck it out of the air and they use that carbon dioxide and they basically turn it into the body of the plant yeah. How effective is a tree? Because this is one thing I never have, have got. Uh, and probably it's a probably impossible question. But, you know, does it take kind of like, I don't know, 20 percent of the carbon dioxide near it to 100 percent? I have no idea. Photosynthesis is an incredibly inefficient process. Um, you're look, looking at sort of about one percent of what is out there in terms of CO2. We, we, 
that could be sequestered actually ends up with the plant. So it's incredibly inefficient, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that we are constrained by the amount of land that we have. Right. And so as long as you're maximising what you can do on that land, that's what makes sense. Now, let's maybe dive a little bit into the side there. Um, it matters where that land is. If I'm looking around the UK, then there's a natural limit on how densely I can grow trees and how yes. much carbon I'm going to be able to suck out on an area of land. If I go to Brazil, then you know what? I can get more carbon out per unit area of land because the soil's different, the agroecological zone's different, the climate's different. So we can get different amounts of carbon dioxide out of the air for the same unit of land in different parts of the world. And we need to be conscious of that. Is biomass sustainable? Biomass can be sustainable. It all depends on how you produce it. Um, and, you know, there's good ways of doing this and there's bad ways of doing it. I spend a lot of my time in academia assessing these and looking at different ways of doing it. It is eminently possible in the UK and in most countries in the world to produce biomass that is sustainable. The biggest constraints are the one I've already mentioned on land. And then, yes, that gets challenging when you start looking at certain places. So, you know, hotspots that I would flag are places like Malaysia and Indonesia, where you have quite small land masses that can be incredibly productive in terms of the amount of um, yield and the amount of carbon they can soak up. But actually, there isn't that much land there and you need to be really careful about how you use it. Actually, the UK doesn't have a huge amount of land going spare, but we have quite a lot that we have in farmland at the moment. And farmers in many parts of the UK are looking for other opportunities. They're looking at their markets now that we're post Brexit and post cap. And they're saying, how can I maximise the value of my land for my family, for my community, mm -hmm. and yet still provide what we need. You know, it, it's a huge amount of the UK's land um, that's in agriculture is actually used to produce grain that is fed to cattle or is used for grazing. If we are going to be living in a world where maybe we all decide we're going to eat less meat in future, yeah. then actually there are opportunities there to free up land to sequester carbon instead. When you talk about biomass, right, and, and this is the whole thing that I think a lot of people get confused about, uh, the obvious thought is wonderful, beautiful, massive trees, right? But yep. biomass, from what I've read, could be uh, kind of waste grass, it could be uh, seaweed, it could be other, so what kinds of biomass are out there that we could potentially use for the two things. One is to, to suck in and use as a storage system for carbon, but B, as you said, implement into other things, whether we burn it or we turn it into a plastic, whatever. So can you just talk me through kind of what sort of biomass around the world people are looking at apart yeah. from just a, a tree? Yes, yeah, so, so the, the first one at the bottom of the heap, essentially, the most obvious, um, is the waste material. So if I come back to my farmers again, quite a lot of them have waste arising from things like slurry, from management of cattle. We have a lot of sewage in this country because we've got a lot of people. Um, that's a biomass resource um, that can Are be Are you smoked. telling me, Patricia, poo oh. is biomass? Yeah, absolutely. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've even, do you know what, if I walked just over the um, corridor here in my lab and um, yeah. I've got samples of pig manure sitting there, I don't keep the human manure in the lab, but you know, we, you. we've got plenty of the rest. <laughs> the pig one smells, so, so basically biomass, it really, all it means is 
some biodegradable material. Is, is that it's it? something that has had, we call it recent biogenic origin. And that means that the carbon, di the carbon atoms yes. have recently come from the atmosphere. That, that's what it actually means. Right. You, you breathe every day the carbon yeah. dioxide in, and this helps you to grow and you eat stuff which has you know been grown in the ground. Yeah. That's taking carbon dioxide via photosynthesis. So this is where this carbon cycle comes in. And it must be recent in origin, otherwise it won't help the climate. Now, the sustainability art is getting that balanced. You talk about recent. So this is the thing, I suppose, that you know we're going to go back in time just now for the, the listeners. Yeah. But this is the irony I've always found, because I'm a bit of a geek on prehistoric life. But oil and gas, right, is basically from the car Carboniferous period, which was basically yeah. the planet was covered in trees. Those trees yeah. rotted. Have I got this right? They rotted. Got it right. And that's yeah. what you've got that makes the irony of ironies the stuff that becomes coal and oil and gas. You're dead right that that um, that the stuff that is oil and gas was originally a, a biomass material, but over millennia that has mineralized and has therefore changed form. Um, so so it is now something quite different. But I think you know you're therefore dealing with that long-term fossil cycle. What yes. we're dealing with with biomass is the short-term cycle. And, you know, I talked about waste there, but we, we can be dealing with crops. So let's say we're looking at straw. That is stuff that was grown last year and therefore has taken CO2 from atmosphere six months ago. And therefore that is of recent origin. I could be talking about short rotation coppice. Now coppice is something that got started in the UK maybe about a hundred years ago when we wanted our trees to grow better. And it involves after a year or two, basically cutting them down to the ground so that you get multiple shoots coming out instead of just one. And that gives you a higher yield in a quick time scale. So coppice, you might run over a three year time scale or a five year, and then you mm -hmm. cut it down and it grows really fast. It's a bit like pruning your roses. You know, you cut yeah, them yeah. in order to make them grow. So, so that's coppice. You then get into a whole set of stuff that we don't have that much of in the UK called short rotation forestry. And that's where you have forests where you grow over maybe 10 to 15 years, as opposed to what the UK tends to have that longer cycle of taking maybe 60 to 80 years to get to a mature tree. All of those are biomass. They all have different implications for that carbon cycle. And that's where we need to be careful. We need to look at the carbon cycle, make yeah. sure it's sustainable if we want to use it. But I think the final thing I would say on that in relation to the big trees is that when somebody puts aside the land for 60 or 80 years to grow a big tree, they need to make money out of it at the end usually. And therefore what's important to them is the big log up the middle. We call yeah. it the stem, yeah. and that is what you use for the construction industry, for building houses, for making beautiful oak tables and all of that. That is really valuable. The little bits that sit around the side are what we tend to use in the biomass industry because nobody's got any good use for bits of twigs that are only one centimetre in diameter. How, is that right, though? Because th this is the whole point of the recent panorama, and there's been reports that you've probably read as well in environmental say. Now, what we're doing is we're burning these prime trees. And then the argument goes, well, hang on, Patricia, this tree took 200 years to grow. It's got this massive size. We've chopped it down. We've burnt it. And you may disagree that they do that, but let's just, let's go with this. Let's argument. say that they do. Yeah, I'm happy yeah. to go with that. Uh, and then, then they go, and you said, right, we're going to replant it, but it's going to take 100 years. For that tree to go yeah. like that's a disaster that's taking 
a, a plant that could absorb it, had millions of leaves on it, and it's gone. I think the problem here is we think in human timescales. The planet and climate change think in much greater timescales. And, you know, the, the fossil timescale is, is a good example of that. But actually, climate change is a problem that started about 150 years ago with the Industrial Revolution. And in order to address that, we can have um, trees that are growing. You know, um, I've done the sums for trees all over the world yeah, on rotations of 20 years, 30 years, 50, 60, 80. And what you get is you get the carbon that's sitting on the earth increasing over the period that the tree is growing. Then yeah. it hits its maximum. Then you cut it down and then you start again. If you repeat that cycle, and it is very important that you do continue to repeat it and that we do continue to keep forested areas on the planet. But if you repeat it, then the average carbon that you have over the period of time is about halfway. Um, you also get a little bit of a benefit with what you end up locking up in the soil. So I think that you, you need to be careful about the carbon up and down um, and the timescale business over 100 years, because from the planet's perspective, it will see that as, you know, because the trees are at different ages on different parts of the planet, what it sees is the average of that. And therefore, it doesn't actually matter too much. We're dealing with, you know, the average of lots and lots of different variations land areas all over the world and as long as we keep that land area forested and we keep replanting there isn't actually a big difference to what the average that is locked up is does that makes sense it does make sense to me but environmentalists would, would disagree so what do you do when you get <sighs> this is just wrong no because because the visual thing patricia and i get what you're saying mm. we, we we live a 60 80 year lifespan the trees yeah. live several hundred but the visual thing you know a massive beautiful tree gone yeah. you, you you feel it in your gut right and 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 that's very hard to say i planted 40 little ones saplings to, to replace it what, you're, what, you're absolutely you right yeah. at you uh, as a scientist by environmentalists what, what how do you respond i i think this is really challenging because it, it you you actually strike to the heart of the issue here that I view trees, no, I don't view trees. My work involves looking at the carbon balance for trees in a very clinical way. And I can do all that assessment and I can crunch the numbers. The and man, I can give you yeah, yeah. scientific evidence that says, here's what we're doing, here's what the carbon looks like. Yeah. But we're human beings mm. and we need we need more than science. We, need, we, we rely on trees for our landscape, we rely on them for our culture, we rely on them for amenity. You know, yes, I like going for walks in forests, you know, and, and sure. I want them to look nice. We rely on it for biodiversity. So actually foresters have a really big job here. Um, I, I sat at COP26 last year and I right. sat next to a forester and they told me that when they did the PhD in forestry, their supervisor um, used to be a rocket scientist with NASA and switched to forestry because rocket science is easy. You do the calcs, it goes up, it comes down. Forestry, wow. Try balancing people, landscape, visual amenity, water, biodiversity, that, that's an immense job. So I think that we need to start thinking about trees more holistically. And a big part of that is, yeah, the social element of it, that we love looking at them and we love experiencing them. But actually, if we are seriously going to tackle a climate problem, there yeah. needs to be a balance around the fact that some of them are better at doing carbon than others, and we need a few of them as well. And this is the other side of it, isn't it? That, you know, um, loads of people talk about offsetting, right? And there's a big criticism about offsetting. Yeah. 
you can use a monoculture crop and you say, right, actually, I'm, I've flown around the world. I've got, in fact, I've flown to COP in, in Egypt and I've offset that flight. It's a bit madness that we're doing this stuff. But anyway, here we go. We, I've offset that flight and I've bought a bunch of, I don't know, whatever, gladioli. I'm going to make it up right now. And then yep. I've got forests and forests of gladioli. But that's not what's good for us. We need yeah. so where where does that argument go? Which is again shown that what we're doing with the whole offsetting by planting, we're planting the wrong things. And this this is the problem, isn't it? It's very. I, I'm going to agree with you on this one, um, and this is a personal opinion, not yeah. a scientific one. I am not a fan of offsetting. I think it is excusing us from our moral responsibilities to actually reduce consumption, yeah. and I think it just feeds more consumption. I, I personally, I would never take in, you know, I, I've, I've never done it. I've never done that purchase scheme. I think that it's sort of salving our conscience, making us feeling better about doing the wrong thing, isn't it? And I, I'm not a fan of that. We need to focus on doing the right thing. But if, if you did, and, and that's, and, and I agree with that, but on the scientific basis, d does it really, does it make sense? You, you, you offset and you plant a plant, does it matter what the plant is? I think it matters. And I think what you need to be doing is looking at schemes that are accredited. Many of them are accredited on general sustainability. And this comes back to the point I made earlier about forests, that there's lots of different competing things to balance. But on a personal front, if, and I would never do this, but if I wanted to offset my carbon emissions for a flight, then I would be looking for something that definitely certified the carbon element of what yeah. was in there, because otherwise, what is the point? Um, and I would be looking for a scheme that gave me assurance on that. There are some schemes out there. There are some that are more robust than others. But yeah, I, I think we need to be really, really careful with offsetting because I have a horrible feeling it's a slippery slope that um, leads to more consumption. You've worked a lot and been invited on basic various boards for government. And I think just uh, yesterday, time of recording this podcast, you, you've spoken to Parliament. What, what were they looking for? What, what were you being challenged on? Yeah, so yesterday was all about an inquiry which the Environmental Audit Committee have at the moment on deforestation. And they're interested in whether practices, particularly around um, importing um, wood into the UK, are causing deforestation overseas and whether the regulations that we have in place in the UK are adequate to prevent deforestation. Now, the inquiry is a bit wider than that, but th those are the bits that I was being pulled in on. And what were you grilled on? <laughs> um, it, it was interesting because I was sat alongside Drax at the time, so obviously the Panorama programme, which you've yeah. already mentioned, did, did come up. But I think, you know, I've, I've talked to you already about that timing aspect. And one of the examples that I drew yesterday on timing is that forestry is something that is supposed, we, we want it to be sustainable. And that means we need it to be continuous. And I drew the comparison um, with finances that every month um, I get paid. Yeah. I, I work and I get paid and then I spend it. And that's okay because I know I'm going to get paid again next month. Mm. So for me, forestry is a bit like this. I grow trees because I intend to cut them down because they're useful. I'd like to make furniture from it. I like it to be there um, as something to walk along in between. But it's okay to access what I've invested in, provided I know that I'm going to replace that investment. 
And one of the points that I did make yesterday was around governance on this, that actually it's really hard. And we come back to these human timescales, that we know we're committed to this and we know that we want to make this sustainable. And we can look at sustainability within our little time frame and say, oh, let's go and check, did they plant more trees? But actually, none of us really knows whether in 50 years time, those trees are still going to be there. So there's a certain amount of trust here around mm. future generations. And, you know, their, their science, frankly, has nothing to say. All, all I can say is that, you know, I can look today and see are the practices that are being carried out today sustainable. And I think that's important that we do that as and scientists. Do you, think they are, everyone does it. Do, do you think they are sustainable in general? Oh, in general? That is such a big question. Um, there are a lot of examples of good practice out there. You know, I, I've crunched the numbers for many different companies who have come to me and, yeah. you know, academic partners around the world on their supplies for importing stuff into the UK. I generally find that most of them are saving carbon. I think if there were two things I would point to where that has a risk of not taking place um, in the biomass front, it's where we have land use change. So where we are, for example, cutting down area that is high carbon stock. Yeah, and I suppose this is the, the, this is the other thing that, you know, you, you said it there and, and what you gave evidence yesterday. This is the other thing that is thrown at the whole biomass industry is that, you know, you, you go and get biomass. We don't have enough of it here. So we go and get some wood chippings. We stick it on a boat. We get that boat to chug out loads of diesel as it sails across the Atlantic or wherever, and then we burn it here. And for a lot of people, again, that thing has two elements. One is, what a waste transporting it. Why don't we use our own local biomass? And the second one is, isn't this an exploitation in the sense that here we are, rich country, we're going to have energy that's all nice and clean. By the way, Malaysia, we've chopped out new trees and we've taken it. Okay, so, so let's deal with both of those separately. The, the first bit, and I think the transport one's particularly interesting here. Most people, I think, don't realise that shipping is an incredibly efficient um, way to move things. Um, You're looking at a factor of 100 times more efficient than trying to truck stuff down the M5. So even though we're taking this stuff long distances, and I'll give you real numbers here, when I crunch these numbers and I look at importing material, let's say, from the US or Canada, um, I'm looking at thousands of kilometres. And what I find is that I use up roundabout five percent of the energy content of the tree i'm saying tree we're talking pellets on transport yeah yeah. Yeah. so i'm using up about five percent of that and getting it across the ocean so but what about the emissions you you, you're you're counting that as well are you sort of as such um i've talked there on carbon sorry you talking about airborne emissions yeah yeah exactly which is 
I, I, I do take that into account in the life cycle calculations. I'm afraid I don't have a ready number no, no, that's fine. on that at okay. the moment, but I, I, I'm happy it's pretty small, to be honest. So you're saying, it actually, if you look at it, it again, this is visuals over maths, that yeah. the visual picture is a big, huge tanker full of yeah. biomass um, crates is, is chugging away and, and there's black smoke coming out of it. But actually you're saying, for what it's doing, the volume it can carry, it actually isn't as bad as we all could perceive. But then oh, the is, that's right, yes. But then the question is, why don't we just cut that out and just take it locally? Great, you know, and another advocacy is biomass local. So let's have a forest nearby, let's have a wood, wood area that we have nearby, and we just use that. I, I absolutely agree with you that we should be doing more local biomass in the UK. And, you know, in the programme that I lead, the Supergen Bioenergy Hub, we've done a lot of work looking at where in the UK um, we, we could do that. So I, I think that makes sense. But there's a reality here, which is that we live in a globally connected world. Um, mm -hmm. we, we don't provide all our own food. We definitely, yeah. uh, and this is a big bugbear of mine, we definitely don't provide all of our own clothing, our plastics, the things that we consume. Most right. of it comes from China, Taiwan, wherever. Yeah. And actually trade is a mediator here. And I think that we need to be careful because in one sense, in, in my ideal planet, we would grow things and produce things in the place where it made most sense for the environment. Yeah. And for a lot of trees, that might be Scandinavia, that might be the US. Um, yeah. For many yeah. of them, the species that I'm interested in, it probably isn't the UK, actually. And if we grow them where it makes most sense, then we can more than offset the impacts associated with moving them around. The important thing is that because this is trade and there's money changing hands, actually you're supporting people who have more than enough of something to give it away to others. Um, you know, so I'll draw examples where, you know, I do a lot of work in um, low and middle income countries around the world, in Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, where we're looking at how can we add value here? How can, here's another biomass one. I've got a project ongoing with a mango producer in South Africa yeah. um, who produces peels when he's getting his mango ready for supermarkets in the UK. And if I can get energy or indeed products that might be of value from those peels, then that empowers people in that country, improves their GDP, creates local jobs. And I think it's right that we should be doing that. And what you find around the world is actually most of the countries that have a lot of land and a lot of agriculture are very often countries that are less developed. And therefore, I think there's a big synergy here with how we can work in terms of um, international aid and how we can be looking at supporting other countries towards prosperity by buying stuff from them. I'm happy, for, I'm happy to buy mangoes. I'm happy to buy biomass. And this is the funny thing, isn't it? And, and you, you know, the avocado one is the big thing, right? People always talk about that and palm oil and all that. And these are where we, we, we you know, this is what's been great about talking to you is we can lose the sight that actually, yes, you've shipped an avocado across uh, thousands of miles, but that's a crop that someone sold that improved their life and they can grow another one. And we, there is a very big narrative that I'm trying to fight against, which is that, you know, every, everything you do is, is negative. Well, yes, by existing, <laughs> there, there are things here, but it, it's, it's a very hard, in the world of social media, moral argument to make, isn't it, for scientists like you? 
Yeah, and, and I guess I'll have to draw lines here because I am a scientist, um, not a theologian. So, you know, I'm not going to make a moral argument, frankly. Um, but I, I do, you know, I, I go out to places where I see, I'll give another example. I, I've had a project ongoing for about 10 years in the Philippines where we've been working with local farmers to help prevent burning of rice straw. That, that's a fabulous project where we've engaged with local communities and we've built a little digester and they can take it there and we can produce gas from it. They can use for cooking. We produce electricity from it. And this is was funded originally by Department for International Development to provide energy access to rural communities. But, you know, we, we can use this and we can work with, you know, UK derived technologies. These are UK companies out there working on that project um, to, to make a difference. And I think when I look at the countries in the world that have an awful lot of biomass, yeah. many of them could do with, you know, a bit of extra income um, and they have communities that need support. And I'm going to bring this back to home here, really, and say that when we look at some of the stuff that's topical in the press at the moment, and we look at migrants crossing the channel, yeah. and we look at where some of these people are coming from, and we criticise them because they're economic migrants, well, yeah. you know what? If we can help to provide economic opportunities in country, and like I say, many of them, it's agricultural opportunities, then isn't that doing our bit a little bit here? You know, maybe a very small little bit that we're doing, but that's... That's what I like to think we're doing with some of our international projects, that we're using UK technology to help overseas um, in a way that actually allows agricultural and technological developments in country that can be sustainable in the long term. Before I add two, two quick things I want to touch on. You've given a brilliant explanation. I thank you for the whole uh, arguments and the, the, the science behind it. But the fundamental question about burning biomass, Patricia, um, when you burn it, right, and that's the thing. So all of that I get. So we've got the trees, we're going to replant. There's a longer time scale. Let's think about it. But is burning actually a good thing for, for getting the energy out of it? Should we be doing that? Because, again, this is the other thing. You know, you look at the Drax plant, and there are many others around the world where, where biomass is being burned. And, again, whether that's a psychological thing rather than a scientific thing, it doesn't seem right. Yes, yeah, so I think that the point about burning it at the moment is that it's what we've learned to do and we can do well and therefore we can do it economically today. Yeah. Should we be doing this in the long term? No. In the long term, we want to move to much smarter things. So um, I, I completed my PhD 20 odd years ago now. And what I was working on was a process called gasification, where we take right. um, coal or biomass, we turn it into a gas. That allows us to split the carbon from the hydrogen and then we can take the hydrogen for energy and we take the carbon and we say you know what there are much cleverer things we can do with this because one of the things that i just want to leave you on maybe to think about is that come 2050 there are only going to be a limited number of carbon atoms on the planet and we've got rather a lot of stuff that we rely on. I'm sitting here at a desk that's mostly carbon. My clothes mm -hmm. have an awful lot of carbon in them. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to start getting smarter about these processes. So burning is what we know how to do today and we know how to do it economically. But you're absolutely right that moving forward, what I and others are working on is getting better value from the biomass that we have. I think that'll be materials, it'll be products, it'll be chemicals, it'll be a whole range of different things. The technology isn't there yet, but, but we're aiming. Lastly, when you sit in the, in the actually you're, you're quite sophisticated, Patricia, when you're sitting in the wine bar, 
laughing. I'm engaging. <laughs> and, and, and someone has a casual conversation. They say, well, do you know, this is really wrong. I don't, it, it is biomass. Should we end with a very simple one? Uh, and is biomass going to help us to be green? The last time that I saw the figures from the Committee on Climate Change, they reckoned that by 2050, we needed to be pulling 20 to 80 million tonnes of carbon out of atmosphere. And biomass fire, biomass to energy with carbon capture and storage was hoping, well, was being assumed to be able to deliver somewhere around about half of that. If we can't do biomass with carbon capture and storage by 2050, then our lifestyles will need to be very, very radically different to where they are today. We need to change and reduce consumption anyway. Biomass to carbon capture and storage and other greenhouse gas removal methods can help us mitigate that a little bit. But, you know, it, we've got to make it work because otherwise I, I struggle to see how we're going to be surviving beyond that. And lastly, it just come to my mind, you work internationally. What's the international view about biomass when you meet your colleagues from around the world? It varies a lot. Um, next week, I'm in Norway, and there they have huge forests, um, huge forests across Sweden and most of Scandinavia. And, you know, you, you see there the value of um, pulp on the worldwide market going down because we're buying less books, we're using more electronic media. And if we want to sustain those forests and keep values so that people keep them in the ground, then we need alternative uses. They have a long history of using biomass for heating and so on. So they're really comfortable with it. They know their forests, they know how to manage it. So, so that's what happens there. Brazil, a country I've been to mm. several times, mm. I have never come across a set of people who are closer to their ecological um, history and know more about what they're doing than Brazil. You know, um, they, they put everyone else to shame in terms of the records they keep, the rigidity of it. They know exactly how far up the mountain they've got this crop, that crop, and where it will need to move to adapt to climate change. It is agriculture that is micromanaged. It's really quite an incredible um, thing. And then I go to the Philippines where they're burning rice straw because they desperately need to get the next crop in the ground to feed their families within months. And that's all been wasted. So I think it varies hugely depending on context. Uh, and actually that's what key here. We need different bioenergy solutions for different parts of the world, different people, different communities. We have to tailor make them. There's no one size fits all here. Um, but I think, you know, that if we do that properly and we're sensitive um, to local needs, we can grow the right biomass in the right place and deliver solutions that work for people. I, I bet your students love your lectures. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't do an awful lot of lecturing. <laughs> you've been brilliant. Thank you so much. You really, I think you, of all the podcasts I've been doing, we've been doing this about a year now, this has been the one I've enjoyed probably up there as one of the best because you've really hit the nail and explained it in a way that an idiot like me can understand. Patricia, I am internally grateful for you joining us on the Net Hero podcast. Please come back again because we'd like to get more. I think this is a very uh, interesting uh, topic to, to talk about. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the opportunity. My real thanks to Patricia there because I think she's really explained it to me. Um, I can see what it means. I can see how it can work. Uh, Tell me what you think. Tell me your views on it. Um, I'm sure there are people who still are not convinced. I kind of think the way she explained it, the science behind it works. Remember, 
Future Net Zero is all about better business, better planet. And we need business to change to get us to a better planet. We need you to be involved. Get involved by reading our content on futurenetzero.com. Get involved by interacting with us on social media. And please put yourself forward to be on this podcast. My thanks to Rob for recording it, producing it as ever. I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet. <laughs>